I am telling a story today, though, about two boys. Oh, look, we have two boys. Hey, what do you know? Jesus told a story about two boys. They were brothers, even. And the story goes like this. It's in Matthew 21. What do you think? A man had two sons. Now he came to the first son, and he said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. No, I don't want to, he replied. But later he changed his mind and went. The father said the same thing to the other son, who replied, Yes, sir. But he didn't go. Which one of these two did his father's will? They said the first one. Jesus said to them, I assure you that tax collectors and prostitutes are entering God's kingdom ahead of you. For John came to you on the righteous road, but you didn't believe him. But tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. Yet even after you say this, you didn't change your hearts and lives. You didn't believe him. So, I forgot my Bible somewhere. So, the most common phrase in our house, I am fairly convinced, is this. What can I have for snack? What can I have for snack? Which in itself is not such a bad question. It's fine, except that our answer never changes. Cheese, yogurt, cookie, uh, banana, right? There, there's a list of things, and they know that what you can have for snack in our house. What I have discovered is that usually when the phrase, what can I have for snack, is asked, it means that there's actually something very specific in mind that they're asking for that they want me to tell them that they can have. I want an Oreo. I want one of the popsicles, right? So one day I had a conversation with one of the girls, and I asked, why don't you just ask for what you want? And the response was, because you will say no. <laughs> if I ask for what I really want, you're not going to say yes. And I really want one of the treats in the cupboard, so I'm going to come about this in a backwards way and hope. So the conversation ended like this. How about you practice asking for the things that you want, and I'll practice saying yes. But when I hear this story of Jesus, I feel like I relate to that first son very quickly. That my first reaction when I'm asked about something is no. Maybe it's because I just don't have margin in my life or enough mental space to process what's happening. My default reaction when I'm asked something is no. And Jesus' story reminds me of the way, and sometimes we have a quick answer but then later we change our minds. If you think about the context, if you're following along in your Bible, Matthew 21, it begins with Jesus' arrival into the ancient city of Jerusalem. He enters into the temple, he throws out those who are corrupting the worship there, and he says to the religious leaders, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a hideout for crooks. Jesus is quoting from Jeremiah 7. If you read that passage, you will hear God offer to dwell with his people, a promise of the presence of God with his children. But instead, the people continue to run away 
and run away from God and towards the things that will cause their own destruction. And so Jeremiah 7, 9 to 11 says this, And yet you trust in lies that will only hurt you. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, sacrifice to Baal, go after other gods that you don't know, and then come and stand before me in this temple that bears my name and say, we are safe, only to keep doing all these detestable things? Do you regard this temple which bears my name as a hiding place for criminals? I can see what's going on here, declares the Lord. We are safe. The perspective of the people in the time of Jeremiah was that they could do whatever they wanted, but when they came into the temple, they would be safe. The perspective of the people in the time of Jesus was that they could call on God and be safe. I wonder if sometimes it is also the perspective of us. I've got my internal insurance covered. I said a prayer. I checked the box that said Christian on the census. I am safe. What Jesus condemns is religious people who do evil and then run to the temple and believing that they are then protected by God. Jesus condemns those using their relationship with the temple to protect them from their unjust behavior. Shortly after this encounter, Jesus has this really weird story with a fig tree. Jesus says early, or Matthew says, early in the morning, Jesus was returning to the city and he was hungry and he saw a fig tree along the road. But when he came to it, he found nothing except leaves. He said to it, you'll never, bear, never again bear fruit. And the fig tree dried up at once, which sounds harsh. It doesn't sound maybe like the Jesus we're used to hearing about in some of these other stories. Why does Jesus, what does Jesus have against fig trees? Why does Jesus just curse this tree? But we, we know from passages like Jeremiah 8 that the fig tree has a very special meaning to the Hebrew people in the scriptures. This isn't Jesus being mean to a tree. This is Jesus teaching his disciples about the danger that comes when religious people are full of show and promise but have no fruit in their lives. It's a parable. If parables are stories that Jesus tells, think of this encounter with the fig tree like a skit or a play. Jesus is acting out for the disciples a story about what happens when religious people look promising from a distance but have nothing of substance to offer you when you draw close. It looked good, but when I got close... There was nothing to eat. The temple, Jesus says, has become like an unfruitful fig tree, good from a distance, but if you're depending on it to feed you, to sustain you, to build your strength, you will starve. So after these stories, Jesus gets questioned by the religious leaders. What's going on? Who gave you this authority to condemn our institution, our spiritual authority, our power? Where did this come from? And Jesus refuses to answer, and instead he offers us this story of two sons. And so Jesus begins, what do you think? It's a, it's a brilliant entry, because he's creating this opportunity for the Pharisees to condemn themselves with their own mouths. A man had two sons, and he came to the first son, and he said, son, go and work 
in the vineyard today. No, I don't want to, he replied. But later he changed his mind and went. The father said the same thing to the other son, who replied, yes, sir, but didn't go. Which of these two did the father's will? They said the first one, and Jesus said to them, I assure you that the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering God's kingdom ahead of you. For John came to you on the righteous road, and you didn't believe him. The tax collectors and prostitutes believed him, yet even after you say this, you didn't change your hearts and lives. You didn't believe him. John, Jesus says, came on to the religious leaders the right way, on the righteous road, the way that and the way of life and justice and right relationships with God and neighbor, but they refused. And so it's clear in this story that who the characters are. He is contrasting the temple leaders who say the right words but don't do the right things with the tax collectors and prostitutes, those who are unrighteous, who don't always say the right things but are doing the right things. The obvious and clear meaning of this story is that obedience to the way of King Jesus is of utmost importance. I don't think we can listen to this story without hearing these other words from Matthew in the background. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Or, in Matthew 15, verse 8, when Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah, and he says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So everyone knows which son is the right one. Jesus is blunt. The religious leaders say yes to working in the vineyard, but it's only lip service. And their hypocrisy and disobedience has now been revealed to everyone. Those who are designated as unrighteous have already received and believed the message. They have taken it into their heart, and they, like the first son, have repented. They have changed their mind, and they are ready to be part of the reign of God. So parables function as mirrors. They are a way that Jesus holds something up to us, and then we have to wrestle with, who am I in this story? Where do I relate? So which of the children do you relate to? The first child is this reluctant child, the one who, when they are invited to participate in the kingdom work, responds with an honest, no, I don't want to. I think there are many times in which we can feel this way. There are many reasons that we refuse to respond to the Father's invitation. We can be lazy. We can be disillusioned, hurt, cynical, overwhelmed, overworked, insecure, doubtful, afraid. The list is long and the many reasons <laughs> the list is as long as the many reasons we have for moving away from God's invitation in our life. But this child changes his mind. The word changes his mind is the same word as repentance. The child repents. I don't want to, but then repents and joins the kingdom work. I believe that this story offers us a great hope for each one of us. The hope is for all of us who have had opportunities in, to in tell people about Jesus or to participate in God's reign or in acts of mercy or service or forgiveness, but then we have failed to engage in those for whatever reason. The hope is that those who refuse the invitation of our Heavenly Father can still change their minds 
and be part of the story. There is hope for those who continue to refuse the invitation of our Heavenly Father to know Him and be rescued by Him. The the hope is that there's hope for those who are still afraid or still unchanged. There is still time to change, to repent, to say no to the Heavenly Father does not mean the end of the story. The Son says no, but when He changes His mind, He doesn't find that there's nothing for Him to do. He's welcomed into the field to participate in the work of the vineyard. When the, son change, when the child changes his mind, he is welcomed. He is celebrated. He is the one who did what the father asked. Just because we missed it the first time, the second time, the 80th time, does not mean that we are forever cast as the reluctant child. You can always still change and say yes. There's always time to lean into the obedience. Then there's the second child. The response in the text is so formal, isn't it? Yes, sir. I will do what you say. I will honor your authority. I am willing, but actually maybe have no intention of following through. This is the fig tree with no fruit, a Christian who says they're following Jesus with no evidence of the Holy Spirit's action in their lives. This is a child who is concerned with appearance, but not following through. Don Fraze is a pastor at our Attridge location. He was preaching on this passage last week. He asked a powerful question that I've wrestled with. He says, was the son willfully disobedient or just a victim of good intentions? Was the son willfully disobedient or simply the victim of good intentions? When we put the question that way, I find myself personally really identifying with the second child all of a sudden. The number of times I've heard that podcast, read the book, gone to the conference, come away all excited and full of good intentions, excited just to have that fire slip away uh, when it comes time to put it into practice. Maybe this child really did intend to go to the vineyard and work for the father. But as time went on, he got caught up with his friends on the way to the field. Decided that, yeah, I'll just do this other thing first before I get there. Maybe I'll just, you know, stop in here. And the day slips by, and he misses the window of opportunity that was given to him. In this second child, I think we can relate to either in the sense that we are living our lives to appear holy and good, religious, hoping that our good deeds and our good words will attract the notice and praise of our Heavenly Father. But what Jesus wants are people that will live for him, who are partnering with the work of the Holy Spirit to bear fruit in the world, to bring healing and reconciliation, forgiveness, peace, love, joy to a world that is severely lacking in these things. Or perhaps we relate to the second child in the sense that we have an honest desire to lean into the things that God is inviting us to, but lack the accountability, the community, the discipline, the willpower, or whatever else you can think of, to follow through on that invitation from God. For me, it's that second one that I wrestle with. It's not that I don't know what to do, it's just that too often I allow other things to take over. And so for myself, I hear this story, I see Jesus holding up a mirror and saying, if you see yourself, what are you going to do now? It's not a threat, it's a beautiful invitation, a reminder of the sort of life we are meant to have. We are invited to be children of God, joyfully working with the Father in his vineyard, in his kingdom. 
We are meant to be like trees bearing fruit in all seasons, feeding and shading and welcoming those who are hungry, those who are tired, those who are alone. And so friends, I, I hope that we will respond together. We'll take a look at where we see ourselves and respond in whichever way you feel the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Amen.